Hey, it's Justin, and I have a big announcement and personal invitation for you. This May, we're inviting a small group of people to Austin to learn how to grow their wealth tax-free and get access to some of my personal friends and experts in the industry. We did something similar last year, and the feedback was incredible, so we set aside a few tickets for non-Mastermind members to join us for this event. You'll spend some time learning from Garrett Gunderson, the brilliant and hilarious mind behind Money Unmasked, and the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Killing Sacred Cows, and one of my favorite books, What Would the Rockefellers Do? He's going to share his insights on how to grow your assets tax-free with life insurance. And you'll also get some time with Rob Dial, the mastermind behind the Mindset Mentor Podcast, who will share with you how to find fulfillment in success. Then you'll get to participate in a special investment presentation, in-depth discussions, and breakout sessions on two crucial yet often overlooked topics, personalized tax strategies and wealth building. Plus, when you register, you'll have the opportunity to attend a one-day course the day before on vetting deals. If you want to learn our process so that you can make great decisions, there's no better teacher than Hans Box. This is our most requested topic, and it'll be an exceptional course. Seats for the course and the one-day event are limited, so if you're interested, please grab your ticket today. I always say you're just one connection, one decision, and one strategy away from true freedom, and I look forward to helping you on your journey. Head over to lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash live or click the link around this video and secure your ticket now before we sell out. Hope to see you in Austin this May. Once again, that's lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash live. I can't wait to see you there. Now, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long-term wealth, while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I use to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. If you want to learn all about low-risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it. Ben Fraser is the managing director at Aspen Funds, a private fund that operates real estate funds for investors. He has raised over $100 million in the past several years. Before Aspen Funds, Ben worked as a commercial banker and underwriter in boutique assets management. He's also a contributor to the Forbes Finance Council and co-host of the Invest Like a Billionaire podcast. Ben's experience in real estate and banking taught him that even though successfully navigating a recession and rising interest rates can be challenging, the best opportunities appear when the economic landscape is shifting. In today's conversation, Ben reveals why ultra-wealthy individuals and organizations allocate significant portions of their investment portfolios outside of the stock market and into alternatives like real estate, private equity, and hedge funds, while the average investor mainly works with stocks and bonds. We also go over his strategies for successfully navigating recessions, 
why he likes multifamily and self-storage, and his thoughts on the future of the U.S. economy. One more thing before we get to today's interview. Ben's got a special gift for Lifestyle Investor Podcast listeners. Ben's sharing his 2022 special economic report, The Great Resignation, Ramped Up Inflation, and What It Means for Investors. The report breaks down the underlying factors causing the spike in inflation and the unintended consequences of the great stimulus and great resignation. Learn about why this is all happening and how you can best profit as an investor. To get access to this gift, visit justindonald.com forward slash 108. Thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Ben Fraser. What's up, Ben? So glad to have you on the show. Yes. Thanks, Justin, for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah, this is going to be fun. Well, we share so much in common with just our investment thesis and really the way that we look at the world of investing and public equities versus alternative investments. And so I'm just excited to have you on as someone else, another expert that can help validate what the majority of the wealthy are doing to create their wealth. Most people have been kind of duped into thinking it's all through Wall Street and public equities. And I'm excited to have you on the show because you've got kind of a different mindset like I do and like many of the other guests that I've had on. So welcome. Yes. Thanks for having me, Justin. I I agree. It's been fun every time we talk. It's like we're almost doing very similar things and very similar verticals and uh, definitely aligned. So excited to jump in. Totally. So how did you get started? Like your early background professionally was in you were in the banking industry, right? You were an underwriter, which is an incredible skill set, especially for like vetting deals and like the different alts that you're doing. But I'd love to hear why that was the route and then how you kind of pivoted into what you're doing today, Ben. Yeah, yeah. So I, I come from a banking background. You know, I was a finance major, MBA, and actually worked in kind of asset management for a while, but then spent most of my career, you know, in uh, banking. And it was something that was pretty intriguing. It wasn't really on my radar um, until I talked with a few kind of mentors of mine and that come from banking backgrounds and said it was a great training ground, you know, being an analyst, being an underwriter. And I really viewed it as a learning opportunity, right? I want to go learn and, uh, and see what's under the hood of these borrowers and, and people that are having successful businesses or buying real estate, you know, what are the things that they're doing to build this wealth? And one of the cool things being an underwriter is I get to see everything, right? They, they get to see the financial statements of these individuals, get to see their tax returns and get to look at the deals they're doing. And so you get this really granular view of uh, what's going on. And one of the light bulb moments, you know, and that was younger in my career, but you know, I saw a lot of these borrowers who were kind of high net worth borrowers and they're doing lots of deals and, you know, banks love rich people, right? So generally a lot of the customers, especially the the bank, a business bank that I was working at, lent to a lot of wealthy individuals. And so seeing what they did, one of the you know common threads were one of two things, either one, they own businesses or two, they owned a lot of real estate. And those were like the two most common things that I saw. And so it was definitely some light bulb moments and getting to see kind of behind the scenes. But for me, it was never the end game. And when I saw a lot of people, you know, who had been in banking a long time, uh, you, you kind of 
get this very myopic view if you're in banking for too long because you're only focused on the downside, right? What's, what's the worst thing that can happen in a deal? And banks have to think that way because they don't participate in the upside, right? They only participate in the downside. So you actually, I knew early on that I wasn't going to be here long-term just because it wasn't aligned with the mindset that I had and wanted to, to grow and look for opportunities and, and you know, kind of the abundance mindset. But it was a great training ground. You know, got to underwrite a lot of deals, became a lender for a while, and then joined Aspen Funds about four years ago and became a partner in helping grow kind of our private alternative investment platform. Very cool. And so how long had you been in the banking industry before you decided to go on your own and get into alternative investments? I was in about four years. And you know, at that point, I would, you know, was about to make a jump and had, a, uh, had an offer from another bank. And you know, what I'd kind of seen is after about that four to five year mark, most people that stay in banking don't ever leave. And because it, it gets pretty good because it's kind of like golden handcuffs, right? It's a lot of good perks. You get to play golf every Friday and you get paid pretty well. So there's definitely some appeal to that. But I, I knew in my gut level that that's not what I wanted. And it would just be you know too comfortable. And I, I wanted to, to grow. And so I had the opportunity to work with Aspen and kind of help grow uh, their platform and, and kind of get into the, the equity side of things, not just the debt side. And that was really intriguing to me. And so that was you know the jump that I decided to make. And looking back, I'm very glad that I did to make that jump. Well, and you've also had, I know you've had many role models, but uh, your father, Bob, who I just got a chance to hang out with, the, the three of us got a chance to kick it on your show. What a wealth of knowledge he is, right? And so I'm curious if his influence on you was kind of pulling you in that direction or how long he'd been in that space, or if this is something that maybe you two had talked about a long time ago, doing some sort of business together. I'm curious. Uh, you know, yeah. what the dynamic is there. And I'm sure it's not always easy to work together, but you guys seem like you get along so well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think early on, he was definitely a big influence on my career. And, you know, he was a tech entrepreneur back in the late nineties, had a very successful business, was one of the, you know, most venture capitalized uh, tech firms in the Midwest where we are here in Kansas city had won the Ernst Young Entrepreneur of the Year award uh, at one point, and you know it was a wealth of knowledge and had that mindset, right? So he he was an entrepreneur, and, and he it was always you know the bug in the back of my my ear saying don't settle for anything and, and keep pushing. And so I think he's definitely an influence that pulled me to you know not get comfortable in in banking and get stuck there, but. Yeah, you know, in making that decision and that that jump, you know, aside from just leaving the industry that I was comfortable in, was very successful in, and you know, a lot of parts of it I enjoyed, um, and just making the leap into a different space, it, I you know, raising capital was kind of my uh, what I was you know initially joined to do, and I'd never done that before, and so whole new experience. But aside from that, out on the layer of you know, Aspen Funds was started by my father with his his other uh, co-founder. And so there's a whole other layer of, of family dynamics, right? That I was concerned about. And it's really interesting in leading up to this point of kind of making that decision and making the leap. It was most of the conversations I'd have with people that I worked with family up to that point were very negative, right? It was like, oh, it was, it was terrible. We never got along. It was always, you know, didn't, you know, allow me to make my decisions or grow to how I want to be. But then, you know, right before I made that, that leap, I had at least three or four conversations with people that said, that was the best experience when I worked with my my father or when I worked with my son. 
it was the best experience I ever had. I wish I could go back and do it. And I kind of took that a little bit of a sign from God, you know, and, and also just the little positive experiences that people had had. And so it definitely seemed polarizing to, to do that. But ever since it's been really, really awesome. And you know, we have a great working relationship and it's it's been really, really cool to have a big mentor of mine. Also, I'm a partner with, right? And so there's some unique dynamics there, but it's it's been really cool. Oh, it's awesome. I mean, very few people get a chance to have the privilege, the luxury of getting to work side by side with their father. I think a lot of people don't have the relationship that you have. So it's cool that you have the relationship to be able to work arm in arm. So neat. And so you have a lot of experience in alts. And I'd love to get your framework as to why you like alternatives as opposed to the stock market. Why are you so heavily allocated personally? Maybe your dad, Bob, as well. You know, I know he feels the same way, but why alternatives? Why not the stock market? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm still earlier in my wealth building phase, but I'm, I'm about 100% into alternatives at this point, personally, right? And Bob's not really quite there, but he's pretty high. And before I was in banking, like I mentioned, I was, I worked, uh, I was actually planning on being a wealth manager. So I was going to go down the whole CFP route and actually had did an internship with a wealth manager that managed equities in the stock market. And I was a finance major and that's what you learn, right? Is, you know, how to do fundamental analysis, other things. And so I was going to go that route. That was my plan. And then right after college, I graduated and that all fell through. It didn't end up working out. And so I kind of was familiar with that space, familiar with kind of the public markets. But then right when I was in school was during the the Great Recession and seeing these kind of massive nosedives in the public markets. And a lot of the things that you learn in school, right? And uh, efficient market hypothesis and all these kind of things, it kind of falls apart when that happens. And you know, hearing many people and knowing several people that had, had gone through that and it was very challenging, I just never had a, a huge appeal for it. And I've kind of gravitated towards this. And then kind of being in the, the banking side and seeing a lot of these deals that are going on, you know, and aside from just the real estate deals that I was doing, I was also doing a lot of SBA mergers and acquisitions loans. So I was lending to borrowers that were buying businesses and getting really attractive financing buying really heavy cash flow businesses. And they're making, like in some cases, 100% cash on cash returns. The light bulb moment's going on because you're here, you have this, all this finance background and training of here's what you know the efficient market says, and here's what you should expect in the stock market. And you know here's the path laid out for you. And it just never had an appeal to me. And so I think seeing a lot of those things, just it, it worked out well to be in the space I'm in now, whether by, intentional or by accident. Yeah, you know, it's interesting hearing you talking about efficient markets. And I remember learning about this as well. But the interesting part about it is the opportunity to make good returns is really hard in an efficient market. So if you're efficient, that means there's less of a gap of opportunity, right? There's less of an opportunity to even get in. And so really what you want to do as an investor is find inefficient markets because that's where the huge gains happen. So to have someone be able to make 100% cash on cash return, they make all their money back year one, that doesn't happen in the stock market as a general rule unless you get lucky or have some sort of inside info. And even then, it's really hard. But in, a, in the private markets, that's very common where you can get into real estate and private companies and 
you know, different cash flow deals. And so, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear how this has expanded over the time of you actually becoming experienced in the space. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because you coming from that background of being trained in you know, public markets investing, the big advantage of the public markets is liquidity, right? That's, that's why, you know, it trades for some of these valuations that it trades for. But on the flip side, the private market is illiquid generally. And so it trades at a discount, which, which makes sense. But to your point on efficient markets, if I can earn 100% cash and cash on a private market deal, that's a really big discount if I'm going to be going and you know investing in the stock market at a 7% return on the average, whatever time period you use, right? So to me, I'd be way rather take that, that illiquidity risk in the private markets buying that deal and having, honestly, a little bit more ability to control the outcome than I do in the public markets. To me, there's a massive disconnect in valuations. You know, one of the one of the great things, or kind of not great things for investors, but amazing stats that we point out on our podcast is uh, valuations of real estate and REITs on the public markets, right? So, you know, what one way to kind of measure this liquidity or illiquidity uh, discount in the private markets is looking at the price to book. Uh, ratios of these public REITs, right? So a REIT is a publicly traded real estate investment trust, generally, you know, going to own real assets. And so a lot of people think who are investing in REITs and publicly traded REITs that they are investing in real estate, right? Well, a lot of times these REITs will trade anywhere from a five to a 10x price to book multiple. So a price to earnings ratio, people are familiar with, right? That's the price, you know, divided by the annualized earnings. Well, a price to book is the price of an asset divided by the book value of the asset, which is you know generally in gap fair market value. And if you're trading at a five times book value, that means only twenty cents of every dollar you're investing in that REIT is actually going to buy real estate, right? The other eighty cents of that is buying goodwill. You're buying they're buying liquidity. Well, that that's very expensive price to pay for liquidity when you can go and buy private real estate. At much better valuations, actually get cash flow, have some of the tax benefits. So yeah, I think there is a big disconnect, and there's a there's a massive amount of opportunity in these private alternative investments that that we're finding that you know our investors are finding, and I know you are as well. Yeah, I like your way of kind of breaking that down. And for those that are unaware, a lot of people who do invest in the public equities they like REITs because REITs buy definition or by you know the rules that they're governed by have to distribute 90% of the profits. So people like that, there's cash flow, there's distributions, but you also have REITs on the private side as well. And then to take it one step further, you have sub-REITs where it's a variation of a REIT and you have these tax advantages to it, uh, which is really nice. And so you can have a sub-REIT status, but even have like a debt deal where you aren't paying ordinary income or or short-term capital gains on those returns because you're getting a 20-25% discount that exists because of that sub-REIT status. So there's lots of interesting maneuvers on the private side where you're saving money, you're making more money, there's more control. You also have this ability to depreciate more uh, depending on what the business is. So there's a lot to like. So 
Let's talk about you know your experience. You guys have done a lot of multifamily. We were talking before. One of my favorite things right now, uh, I, I love self-storage, but you can't find good self-storage. Or I shouldn't say you can't. It's really hard to find good self-storage because it's so grossly inflated. Same thing with multifamily. Like right now, prices are just crazy. But you and I are both invested in some self-storage conversions where basically you're buying some existing buildings. Maybe it's a strip mall, maybe it's something else. And it doesn't, it's not the glamorous, nice brand new build of a stealth uh, of a self-storage location right in downtown of whatever city you live in, right? So it's it's not as aesthetically pleasing as that, but the returns are incredible. And I know you know you do some industrial as well, and I love industrial, you know, distribution centers, warehouses, like all this. Anything that supports e-commerce, I think, is the wave of the future. So I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on this and the success you've had with your conversions. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when we are looking for deals, we we use kind of a top-down approach and kind of a macro thesis. So our kind of skill sets and you know bob especially has been you know an economist for the past 10 years and so just by design and by how we just love you know learning about the economy and tracking all these different trends going on we're very in tune with a lot of the kind of trends that are happening and so we're seeing you know a lot of times it's very difficult to predict out what's going to happen 3 5 10 years down the road right but a lot of times you can see the trends that are taking place and materializing over the next few years. You should kind of a two to three year runway. You can generally see a lot of things that are going to be happening. And what I always make the distinction of is a lot of investors uh, conflate the uh, economy with the stock market, right? And the stock market can have these wild swings in price. And you know we're seeing some real major price depression right now in the public markets. But that doesn't always correlate to the economy. And there's other things that you can see going on. And, and the economy is, is kind of like a big cruise ship, right? It's it's going a certain direction. And it actually takes some time for, for it to shift. And so you can see these underlying trends, you know, demographic trends. You can see things that the Fed is doing and how that's going to impact certain markets. And so you can position yourself to be the beneficiary of, uh, of those trends in the short term. So one of the things we're seeing right now, and you're alluding to it, is a lot of these asset classes that we like, that we believe in from a fundamental standpoint, you know, i.e. rent growth and multifamily and demographic trends and self-storage, same thing. There's been massive uh, rent growth there. And both of those assets are very inflation protective, which is really, really, really great right now. But it's very difficult uh, to buy at a decent valuation. And so what we see is the play in these different strategies is to develop, you know, to do development projects or at least have a development opportunity to where you can buy maybe an existing asset that you know is a self-storage facility and then develop onto that add-on more square footage and, and develop that because your, your premium there is is really really the margins are great right now so yes in the self-storage we're actually taking a about 150,000 square foot dead retail strip center it actually was used to be retail and it was an office and now it's completely vacant but it's right on uh, the highway, and it's actually at the intersection of two highways, so it's amazing visibility, which which you love in self storage. And we're basically the whole reason the deal works is we're buying this existing building and land for about I would say forty percent of replacement cost to go buy an existing self storage facility, right? So when you go on with that basis, you know, now you're taking a little bit more on on the construction risk, you take a little more on the development risk. 
and you don't have cash flow going in day one on a, on a pure development deal, but your basis is so low and um, there's not a whole lot of ways you can lose the deal, right? And so if you've done enough of the research and you you know there's a market there for it, it can at least be a, a double if if not a home run. And so we're seeing a lot of opportunity there. You know, same thing is going on in the industrial space right now. There's there's just there's no product to buy. In our in our sub markets where we're at right now, vacancy is near 100% occupancy, and it's the only vacancy in the market is what's considered functionally obsolescent. I mean, it's just older vintage. It's just outdated or it's unusable space. And like in Kansas city, for example, where we're at, which is a big industrial hub because of its central location, there was, I believe it was $10 million of square feet that was built in the, in, in our market here. And in 2020, the vacancy rate was 4%. At the end of 2021, when they, they built, 10 million dollars or 10 million square feet vacancy was still at 4%. So it was 100% absorbed in one year. There's so much to import right now and we're seeing not only the e-commerce boom that continues, you know, especially you know through COVID and just the continued move towards more e-commerce, but we're also seeing a a massive reshoring trend of big manufacturing and other warehousing that's needed for a lot of these big manufacturers that don't want to have the supply chain risks anymore, right? You know, Ford Auto Manufacturer is a great example where they can complete the uh, the cars, but they don't have the chips to finish them up. So they're just sitting in lots. I literally was driving by an industrial site today, and there is there at least three to five hundred Ford trucks just sitting in a lot that don't have chips in them. Wow! They can't sell them, right? And it's th- think about what what would Ford be willing to pay to have a warehouse domestically with, with chips in them instead of having to get them from, I think, Taiwan is where they get them. And they'd be willing to pay a lot, right? So that's just a similar trend we're seeing in a lot of different areas where there's been a lot, you know, this business, there's been this big globalization trend in the supply chain. And, you know, just-in-time inventory was the big buzzword for a decade. Back when I was in school, you know, we learned about just-in-time inventory. Well, that doesn't work anymore, especially in this uh, you know, COVID era and just a lot of the uh, dependencies that we've created. A lot of these manufacturers are wanting to bring that back. And so they're onshoring, they're reshoring a lot of this product, and they're willing to pay a lot to uh, have access to the product when they need it. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a special offer that I created for the lifestyle investor community. When I look back at my investing journey, there's one specific investment in particular that was the spark to increasing my net worth and allowing me to leave my job to become a lifestyle investor. I'm talking about mobile home parks. Yes, mobile home parks. If you just cringed a little, that's exactly why these provide such a great opportunity because of the negative stigma and stereotype people might have. In reality, this is an incredible investment that you can get into with little or no money down. You can also quickly get a return on your capital. You can immediately cash flow on day one. You can hold it forever as a cash cow. You get accelerated depreciation to reduce or eliminate the taxes that you would owe. And often the seller will finance the deal so you don't need a bank. You can also buy them at the highest cap rate of all real estate meaning it's the cheapest real estate to buy based on the income that it generates. And it's the lowest default rate of all real estate, meaning it's the safest asset class to own in real estate. 
I use this asset class to start my journey in real estate investing and grow my net worth to over eight figures all before I turned 40. And out of all the questions that people ask me, how do I get into mobile home parks is still the number one question that I get, which is why I put together this mobile home park masterclass. This is a paid class that I'm offering for a limited time only. For all the details, head over to justindonald.com forward slash MHP and watch the video, which outlines all the details about the class and exactly what you get when you sign up. You'll also hear the incredible success stories from students who have gone through my content and are now making hundreds of thousands of dollars in passive income. If you want to take the same first step that I did that helped me take both my wife and I from working full-time jobs to becoming lifestyle investors, join me in my mobile home park masterclass and let's get started on your journey to becoming a lifestyle investor. Visit justindonald.com forward slash MHP for all the details. Yeah, that, that's all so interesting and so well said. And I know you're out in Kansas City. We've got a group, a team. I do a lot of investing in Kansas City because I like the market in general. I think it's a very strong market. A lot of people don't know that the largest... So look at the whole United States. I love doing this one for trivia. I'm going to give this one away. But <laughs> the, the city that has the most government jobs outside of Washington, D.C. is actually Kansas City. And so I love that. It creates a very strong environment there. So I've owned many brick and mortar businesses there. You know, we had a dog training company there, as I was sharing with you before. We have, uh, by the way, I invest a lot with North Point, who's out of Kansas City as well. I like them on the industrial development side of things. They do less of just buying existing and much more of just buying brand new. But uh, yeah, it's a great part of the country. Now, something else that you are doing that is a lot more contrarian right now is going to be this uh, investment into retail strip centers. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I actually just met with a group today that is doing this at scale. And they're doing it at a very large clip and really focusing on picking up the strips right next to Walmarts since... Walmarts are the largest retailer, so large that the next five retailers after them combined aren't even close to what Walmart is. And so if you can just be in the shadow of Walmart, things likely are going to be pretty good. So I'd love to hear your thesis on this and how it's going so far. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, it's definitely contrarian, right? And when you say retail, people usually have a very polarized response to that. And going back to, we don't have a a hammer and everything's a nail. We're very much agnostic to the deals that we do. We just want it to be a good deal. We want it to fit into the macro framework that we're seeing. And six months ago, I started hearing about retail being kind of coming back in in uh, in play. And in every single real estate conference I've been to, every economist I've talked with, every uh, real estate analyst I've talked to is at a macro level is saying retail is is the place to be right now. And the reason is because this retail apocalypse has really been oversold, right? And COVID was extremely impactful to retail, as we all know, because they had to, you know, generally shut down uh, the foot traffic. And that is, you know, vital to 
functioning, you know, retail properties. But what ended up happening is it's it shook out a lot of the players or the the tenants that were already on the downhill slope anyway, right? It, the weakest players ended up exiting. But for the most part, retail is there's a lot of different types of retail and people don't always differentiate between them. And so what we're focusing on are what we call neighborhood strip centers. So hyper-local strip centers, these are the places where you know you go and get your nails done, where you go and get the, the liquor at the liquor store. And a lot of times more local or regional tenant-based, sometimes you get national credit tenants. But what we're seeing is these strip centers in general did amazing through COVID. And a lot of that was helped through the PPP loans, but these are core businesses that are not going to be fully replaced by e-commerce, that you have to go in person to get these, these products generally, um, or these services. And they're things that are hyper-local to where you are. They're generally in residential areas. And there's a good case behind that. But on top of that, because of this massive overselling of the retail apocalypse, there's a really massive opportunity in what you can buy these, these properties at. So we're seeing properties here in Kansas City, or we're actually uh, on contract in several properties right now. These are We're purchasing these going in at, at 10 caps. So, so 10% cap rates, which means unlevered, we're going to be getting a 10% cash on cash return on our investment day one. And there's a massive amount of value to be added to these um, because they're kind of sleepier centers. So we can improve the curb appeal, get some better tenants in there, renegotiate leases. Leases are you know pretty far below market because these are strip centers that are generally owned by one or two individuals. They don't really know how to maximize them, right? We can add pad sites. So we can add a little uh, area where you can put a little you know, fast food restaurant or a little banks or something and sell that off. And a lot of times you can sell it off and, and a lot of times recap your whole equity uh, put into the deal. So there's some really cool things going on. And because of the purchase price that you can get these at right now, we think there's a massive opportunity. And every every you know economist we've been talking to is saying, this is a play to be, be looking at right now. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. I've got... So I recently had my friend David Lauber on the show, and he does a lot of strip centers. And uniquely, he's got like this anchor tenant that he uses that uh, he brings into all of his locations, and there's so much foot traffic. It's a fitness group, um, mm-hmm. Crunch Fitness, and it brings so many other people in. And so it's easy to find the other businesses that will benefit and, and come in there. Uh, and then I've got another friend that has done very well in this space. He buys strip centers everywhere. He buys strip centers in like your B and C markets, even, and has really done well over the years. And so, yeah, interesting concept and strategy. And I think that there's definitely, if done right, if you know, if you're really able to get like a 10% cash on cash return, uh, you can do that all day, every day, and that that's awesome. But that doesn't mean every deal is like that. And so you still have to do your due diligence, right? 100%. You definitely got to. And, and I, yeah. I think, yeah, one little point to make is we all tell our investors, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And especially, you know, retail is riskier. It's a different risk profile than a multifamily, right? And so your tenants go out of business and usually put a lot in tenant allowance to tenant improvement allowance to improve it, to get you know rentable again. So there's definitely other things you got to consider, but it's something to where the risk adjusted nature of it right now, I think is very, very high and something to consider. Put at least a small portion of your net worth in there, right? Don't, don't put all your eggs in that basket, but it's good to be diversified. Yeah, certainly. And by the way, while we're speaking about due diligence, I think it's important that you're when you're looking to make an investment, you're doing due diligence on the deal itself, on the numbers, the financials, the pro forma, and just know the pro forma is likely not how it's going to work out. 
whenever people say, hey, you're going to make this much, the projected IRR, internal rate of return is this much. It's like, whatever, like, you can tell me whatever number it is, that's not true. What's (laughs) actually more important is, what was your projected IRR on your past deals? And then what was it, right? What, What was the actual? That, to me, is way more important than some number that most people look at and they say, oh, I'm going to make 20% IRR. Well, those people are cashing paychecks before it happens. So that number is pretty irrelevant. But so some of the due diligence you want to do is, you know, on the financials and, hey, are you using long-term debt or using a bridge loan? If you're using a bridge loan, that can be a little riskier because you're not locking in that long-term debt at a low interest rate. You know, when you're doing due diligence, you also want to diligence the sponsors as well. And so I'd love to get your thoughts on, diligencing a deal, diligencing the sponsors, like what what do you do as part of your due diligence process to make sure that you're not making bad choices that could, I guess, equate into losing money? Totally. Yeah. We differentiate between the sponsor due diligence and the deal due diligence. One kind of analogy I always like to use uh, if anyone's into horse racing, I'm not really, but this is an analogy I come up with, so I use it. But basically you have you have three parts of every deal, right? You have the the racetrack which is the vertical that the asset is in or the asset class that it is in. Is it in a secular positive trend? Is it in a secular negative trend? Is that you know, particular sub-market in a positive or negative trend? Then you have the horse. That's you know, the actual deal itself. Is that deal structured well? What what is the uh, the capital stack look like? You know, is there pref equity involved? Is there mezzanine debt involved? What is the senior debt look like? Like you said, is it fixed rate? Do you have interest rate risk? Do they have it? interest rate cap that they've purchased what does that look like what are the terms what's the leverage ratio and you know what are the underlying metrics supporting the deal and the value and then you have the jockey which is the sponsor right and arguably the jockey is the most important part of all three of those pieces of of doing due diligence and so we spend most of our time doing the due diligence on the sponsors and so we always start there before we'd ever invest in a deal well you know we've passed in several good deals or perceivably good deals because we haven't done the diligence that we'd want to do on a sponsor beforehand. And so what that looks like is exactly that. It's it's looking at track record, looking at what are the full cycle deals you've done? How long have you been in the space? You know, if you is this particular deal, you know, uh, aligned with past deals that you've done? Looking at who makes up the the kind of core part of the team, what were their backgrounds in? What is their kind of tier 2 management team look like and who what are their their backgrounds and skill sets? Because you're ultimately trusting these folks with your capital. And not only just from a character standpoint, which is another big thing, but it's also just competence. And, and so I always like to ask, you know, what's the worst deal that you've done? What happened? Right. A lot of times it's something that is they couldn't have planned for. Like we're doing sponsor due diligence actually today on a sponsor. And they had one deal where they went, they hired all the consultants to check is a multifamily deal, check all the big components of the roof, the plumbing, the HVAC. Well, the seller had basically lied in all of these things and it wasn't caught by the consultants. And all three of those things ended up breaking. The roofs needed to be fully replaced. Whoa. HVAC needed to be fully replaced. All the plumbing needed to be fully replaced. So their $1 million construction budget now is a $3 million construction budget. That's massively impactful, right? That's That's a deal that could easily get blown up, but they're managing through it. And so how did you manage through that? What were you doing? Well, we had to pause distributions. We're having to reinvest cash flow. We're going back to the seller and see what 
retribution, we can go back there where we have another deal in this portfolio that we bought that's supporting the deal. We've got all of our investors in, on board and we're working through it. To me, that's a really positive thing to, to hear, right? Of how they're managing through it. They haven't had to do a capital call yet, you know, which is very surprising. And so those are the kind of things that you want to be asking and seeing because eventually there's going to be a dud in a deal that a sponsor does, right? Because not every deal is ends up being perfectly you know, the way they expect it to go. And so it's always good to, to ask about that and how they manage through it. And then obviously you want to look, look at the deal. I think one of the biggest risks right now, you alluded to it, is, is uh, debt risk. I think a lot of these deals, especially multifamily, only work with bridge debt at high leverage ratios. And they can't support the interest rate risk that is potentially going to happen if the Fed keeps raising rates and these, these these rates keep adjusting. A lot of deals I'm seeing, you know, whether even though they're good deals, they're good assets. You know, the business plan makes sense. The financing structure can't support it. And so, you know, I think we're going to see a lot of deals blow up over the next couple of years if we keep seeing interest rates rise. And if there's any reversion in cap rates, yeah, yikes. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely going to be deals that blow up and deals that uh, you're able to buy at a distress level because people did not structure the debt properly. There's no doubt about that. I mean, some of the debt I'm seeing, like just the way people are locking it in, the short term nature, just there's so much about it that is very concerning. You know, you made the comment about the the seller who lied and that just reminds me that if you're buying real estate it's really important in your contract to have reps and warranties where you have the ability to go back when someone is lying it protects you it's protecting your downside of them not giving you all the info and and you do have the ability to to go back and collect on that because they misinformed or lied to you Another thing that I think is really important is, and I learned this from from my good friend Hans Box, he really only likes to invest in deals where the sponsors can be removed. That if there's anything in the language that doesn't allow you to remove them, um, that is a big red flag. And he's been in an investment. And part of what started him from being a CPA by trade to being an investor and a syndicator was that he had to take over a deal for someone that uh, just ran a deal under the ground, but they uh, were able to remove him and he was able to take over and run it. And so I think that that's, you know, that's an important point. You know, something else that uh, I'm curious to get your opinion on is the, the times that we're in. Do you foresee that we're in recessionary times? I mean, if you just look at what's going on in the stock market today, it's it's a bit scary. But what do you think? Are we going to pull through this? Is it going to be a minimal blip? Is it going to be a longer one? Obviously, no one has a crystal ball. No one's holding you to anything. But I'm just curious where you're at and what decisions you're making based on that. Yeah, we're looking at We, we track several kind of key measures to kind of see where where's the direction of this economy going right you know i think a lot of the corrections we're seeing in the markets right now is really due to overvaluation i mean i think most people would would not disagree that the markets have been seemingly overvalued for a while right and so there's interest rate increases whether that signals that that's going to cause recession or if it just signals higher borrowing costs and it that makes a lot of these investments look less attractive that is what I think is going on, I think a lot remains to be seen. You know, the, the Fed has a lot of power 
And uh, it's anyone's guess what they're going to keep doing, right? They have a real problem on their hands with inflation. As real estate investors, I love inflation. I don't love it at 8% because there's a lot of other unintended consequences that causes. You know, so from an underlying fundamental standpoint, you know, up until really a few months ago, the consumer was in really good shape, right? A lot of these consumers sailed through COVID because of the massive stimulus that was pumped into the market in the direct payments that were paid to, to families, right? And then all the business loans that were made, there was a lot of liquidity on the sidelines that's being poured into assets. And right now we're in this really weird time that we haven't really been in for a long time um, where we have negative real interest rates, right? So where yep. inflation minus borrowing costs or your interest rate is actually negative. That, that's not normal. That's actually very abnormal historically. What that actually does is it actually does cause asset price inflation because you're basically effectively getting paid to borrow money if that inflation continues to stay at that level and you have fixed rate debt, right? That's a great arbitrage play. I'll take that all day long. But we, we are starting to see some, some signs of you know, weakening in the economy. And nothing that I would say is red flag is they're definitely yellow flags. You know, I think uh, affordability of housing is, is a big issue right now. We're seeing massive jumps in the cost of mortgages from you know home price appreciation plus borrowing costs from mortgages going up. That's challenging. And then the real big thing that we pay a lot of attention to is sentiment, right? Business sentiment and consumer sentiment. Our economy, the GDP is made up 70% by consumer spending. So if there's a positive sentiment where you know consumers expect the economy to do well and they're feeling positive about where they're at in their personal financial situation, they're going to keep spending and spending keeps uh, the economy going. And so we are seeing some some waning sentiment a little bit. You know, small business sentiment is also important because that, you know, is the level of investment that's being made by small businesses to to grow, to improve you know, productivity and to hire. You know, we have very low, low unemployment. We have generally a very healthy consumer, but we are seeing some certain things that are, I would say, yellow flags and we're long in the tooth in the economic cycle. So we got to be careful, but we still see there's a massive opportunity right now as investors, because this inflation problem, while parts of it are, I think, supply chain uh, disruptions that will get solved, it's going to be a lot slower than people think. And I think taking advantage and positioning yourself in an uh, inflation protective asset is, is really positive right now. Yeah. And you know something interesting that you also said that you do, you were talking about mortgages going up. You guys buy distressed mortgages, which is another interesting investment vertical. Yeah. Yeah. Something we've been doing for the past 10 years, actually, as a result of the last Great Recession and and uh, buying a lot of these mortgages that were distressed at very, very deep discounts. And so it was, was kind of surprising. You know, we could spend a whole other podcast on distressed debt, but the expectation, you know, at the beginning of COVID, where we're seeing this massive spike in unemployment, right? I think it was up to 16% at one point. We were kind of getting ready, like, wow, this is going to be this could be the next great depression, right? We've never seen unemployment like this in modern times. And uh, so we were expecting there to be a massive amount of defaults and debt and other things. And we actually saw the exact opposite, right? Everyone sailed through and a lot of the stimulus, I think, prolonged a lot of things. So we expect there to potentially be more distress coming up. And I think as you know, borrowing costs increase, that should likely slow down the housing market a little bit. The other challenge is we've got massive supply demand imbalances in a lot of areas of the economy. So 
even though borrowing costs are going to slow down the real estate market, we don't think it's going to crash it. We think it's, you know, maybe reduces some of the the uh, amount of overbidding that people are doing in, in single family homes. But yeah, we'll see what the what the kind of next year or so holds for kind of the distress in the market. But we're not seeing it right now, which is interesting. Well, Ben, this has been so much fun catching up with you, learning all the cool stuff that you're doing and all the success that you're having. I'm glad that you made the leap from the banking industry to the alternative investment side of things. That's super cool. I know you've got an incredible podcast. Please let my audience know how they can learn more about you. Yeah, well, we just had you on our podcast. So come check out Justin's episode. It's called Invest Like a Billionaire. It's thebillionairepodcast.com to check it out to see the latest episodes. And then we also have our private equity firm called Aspen Funds, aspenfunds.us. You can join our investor club to kind of get notified of the deals that we're bringing out. But definitely appreciate you having me on, Justin. It's been a really fun chat. Yeah, this has been great. Well, I'm excited for the future. And I just love leaving my audience with one question, one thought to wrap things up for the week, which is this. What's the one step that you're taking today to move towards financial freedom and towards a life that is truly on your terms, not by default, but by design? We'll catch you next week. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review over on iTunes. Not only do I read every single one, but it also helps me understand what content matters the most to our audience. And if you can think of one or two people who would benefit from this episode, would you mind sharing it with them right now? Who knows? Maybe they'll buy you something nice when they make their first million. If you would like access to today's show notes, including links to all resources mentioned, visit www.lifestyleinvestor.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Lifestyle Investor. This podcast is being made available exclusively to financially sophisticated, high net worth individuals capable of evaluating the merits and risks of investments. The material presented in this podcast is not intended to be investment advice or to recommend the purchase or sale of any security, nor is it intended to be legal, accounting, or tax advice. You should consult with your legal, tax, or financial advisor in connection with any material discussed on this podcast. Past performance is not indicative nor a guarantee of future results. Certain materials discussed on this podcast may have been prepared by third parties, which have been obtained from sources that we believe to be accurate and current. However, we make no representation or warranty as to the accuracy, completeness, or currency of such materials.